what I think is the bad assumption there, you know, is that there's only one way that we need, there's only one set of problems we need to be saved from. And then there's only one way for Jesus to be savior. Yes. Yes. And the truth of the matter is, is that there are many things, myriad things from which we need to be saved as we journey through life. And um, for some people, the idea of being covered with sin is not the problem. The problem might be feeling lost or the feeling of being unsafe. I'm away. Eyes wide open, shaking like a little earthquake. On the right side of trouble, breathing just for goodness sake. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn. I'm your host, and this is episode number 144, and it's a bonus episode that we're releasing for Holy Week of 2021. Uh, We released an episode on Monday, our normal day, with uh, Chris Kratzer, and uh, today on Good Friday with Diana butler bass so so why the extra episode well in this episode we talked to diana about her new book that released earlier this week called freeing jesus and we drilled down into the uh subject the topic of jesus as savior i thought to myself what better day to talk to diana butler bass about jesus as our savior than on good friday Because I don't know about you, but for me, and I talk about this in the episode, the label, the title, whatever, Jesus as Savior carries a lot of baggage for me. Uh, Growing up, I was taught, maybe like you, that God is great and I'm not. Jesus is righteous, I'm not. Uh, Jesus is without sin, I'm full of sin. And the more I would lift up Jesus as my savior, as the guy that's got to save me from my sin, the more I felt like I belittled myself as being this miserable, sinful wretch. The more I elevated Jesus, the more I hammered myself into the ground. And as I did that over the course of my life, that takes a mental toll. That takes a toll on your mind, on your heart, on your soul. And so I very bluntly tell Diana in this episode, uh, recently I have given up calling Jesus my Savior. Look out. (laughs) Lightning bolts are coming. No, I'm just kidding. But seriously, I've really struggled with that. And I told her I don't know what to do with it. So Diana helps me unpack that a little bit and reframe Jesus as Savior in a really, really beautiful way. So We talk about that in the episode. We talk about original sin. We talk about all the different things. So buckle up and uh, hold on because you're in for a wild ride. Special music today is from my friend Derek Webb. Uh, Derek used to be a singer in a very prominent Christian band that I used to listen to when I was a kid. Uh, Now he's out on his own making his own music, doing his own thing. And his music is really, really good. Uh, so head over to Spotify, Apple Music, uh, download the music, listen to it, blast it from your speakers, pass it around to your friends. Uh, Derek Webb. Uh, links in the show notes. Patreon, buy me a coffee, 
uh, Heretic Shop to buy some merch if you want to support the show. Uh, head over to the show notes, click on one of those places. Uh, you can make a one-time contribution, a monthly contribution, or buy yourself some swag and wear it on the streets. And uh, there's some spring spring designs in there with some loud colors. I like color. I uh, currently am wearing a pair of Vans sneakers that are tropical with flowers all over them because why not, right? Because I like color. Color makes me happy, and you'll see that when you head to the Heretic Shop and see some of the designs and stuff uh, in there. But all of that said, my friends, uh, again, this is episode number 144, and it's my conversation with the one, the only, the legend, the GOAT, the greatest of all time, Diana Butler-Bass. Enjoy. everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Today I'm excited to bring back onto the show uh, the incredible Diana Butler-Bass to talk about her brand new book, Freeing Jesus, subtitled Rediscovering Jesus as Friend, Teacher, Savior, Lord, Way, and Presence. So Diana, welcome back to the podcast. It's an honor to talk with you. It's good to be with you again, Glenn. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So for our listeners, if you want to hear more about Diana and her story, I head back to spring of... Uh, 2020. 2020 has been a long year. I think it was, I think it was earlier in 2020. <laughs> I think episode like 90 something. But uh, for now, Diana, I just kind of wanted to jump right in and get the most out of our time as possible. And I wanted to ask you for our listeners, what is this book about? Like, why should people go and buy it? Oh my goodness. That's, that's a hard question right? right at the very beginning. You took all of your life and jammed it into this book. And I want a short <laughs> statement as to what it's about. Well, uh, like almost everything else I talk about, there's a story behind this book. Yes. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the story is I, I had gotten very concerned a couple years ago um, about where people sort of were theologically, you know, mm. so many of my friends have talked about going through processes of deconstruction and a good number of people who are in my close in group are just like, I don't know. I don't know what to believe anymore. So I huh. wanted to write a book about belief, huh. but I didn't want it to be, you know, sort of dogmatic or nagging or tell people what they should uh, or must think. And so, so no I know other I, books do that, do they, Diana? You no, know, there are plenty, there are quite a few of those out <laughs> on the market. And so, um, so I thought, well, you know, I, I really want to share with people and what does it mean to experience theology? Yeah. To live yeah. theologically. Yeah. And so I began writing a book and it had the original layout of the book had eight or 10, something like that, chapters. And they were, like creation, um, redemption, mm. salvation, you know. <laughs> the big words, <laughs> eschatology. Yeah. They were all these big words. Yep. And I was going to write a book that was basically an, what I had imagined to be a non-systematic theology. 
so I, when I was writing the project, I got the go ahead from uh, my publisher. They said, oh, this is a great idea. We love it. You're perfect for this project. So I, I thought, where should I begin? Mm. And I was really struggling. Should I start with creation? Should I start with the, the last things? And I decided I would write as the first chapter, the Christology chapter, the chapter on Jesus. So I sat down and I wrote. And I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I wound up having like 60, 80 pages wow. of one chapter. Mm. And I thought, well, this isn't very good because I'm going to wind up writing the church dogmatics if I write right. about <laughs> all of theology. Right. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm writing a book about Jesus. Mm. And so I, I really struggled with that. Because one, apparently, what, what, you know, what are you going to say about Jesus that's never been said before? Well, at least I had figured out 80 pages to say right. that hadn't been said before. Yeah. And, um, you know, I thought, well, who's going to, who's going to want to buy a book by me about Jesus? You know, I write about culture. I write about church history. I write about spirituality. Mm. Um, so Jesus I called my publisher. I told them what I was doing and they became convinced that it was a really good idea. And mm. I just went on with it. And, and, and so the book emerges as what I call a memoir theology. It's mm. really a book about living Jesus. Mm. And so it, it doesn't have the word, I don't believe Christology anywhere in it. Mm. And instead, it becomes an invitation for people to reflect yeah. on who they have experienced Jesus to be um, and what that means mm. um, theologically and spiritually for each one of our lives. Yeah, it's definitely, I think that's a good way to put it, a memoir theology, because it's funny, like as I'm reading the story, it's like a story of your life, but then all of a sudden out of left field, here comes this zinger of a piece of theology that's like, whoa, like I never thought of it like that before because you tie it into your story and that's so uniquely. Yeah, each chapter in this book mm -hmm. uh, takes a part of my life experience and it goes chronologically. Mm. And so it starts with me and my earliest memories of mm. Jesus. And since mm. I was born in 1959, I, I guess I'm going to have to tell everybody that a lot during this <laughs> book tour. Uh, <laughs> since I, I was born in the middle part of the 20th century um, in a Protestant family, you know, there's a certain kind of way that everybody knew something about yeah, Jesus. You know, right. they just knew Jesus name. And so I begin with those earliest memories of Jesus from Sunday school, singing, Jesus loves me, mm -hmm. uh, sitting in circles with Bible stories being read um, to us by my favorite Sunday school teacher, Miss Jean. And I try to write each chapter as if I am still four, mm. or if I'm writing about when I'm 13, when I was 13. Mm. So you get memoir, which is done in this sort of, you know, haze of memory and nostalgia even. And then what I do is take that memory and back it up to questions that emerged for me, either at the time or later, 
about that, uh, about how I'm seeing Jesus yeah. and then unpack that mm. um, through history, through biblical studies, through something that's going on in our, our society and try to shift between the voice of memory and the voice of theological provocation, really, because yeah. it's yeah. very provocative yeah. um, in the ways that I pick up these different aspects of understanding who jesus is so so you saw it rightly you know (laughs) is that there's the memoir and then there is the well what does this mean piece yeah and and so it follows the course of pretty much my whole life up until about the time i'm 45 or 48 someplace Mm. in there I, I left the last decade hanging a little bit at the end because still being written. <laughs> it's still being written. That's correct. That's right. <laughs> the book reminded me a lot of uh, Brian McLaren's new book, Faith After Doubt, because I mean, it's very different, but it felt like it was similar in that he's also speaking of like an evolution of sorts and coming to understand like faith and God and spirituality and the Bible and all the things. Have you Have you read his book? Um, yes. And yeah. it's very interesting that you would notice the connection between the two books because several years ago, Brian and I were sitting together on a porch at a camp called Ring Lake Ranch outside of Dubois, uh, Wyoming, um, place where we have sometimes co-presented. Mm. And um, we were talking about what we were going to write next. And in that conversation, I said, you know, I've kind of developed this fascination about writing a theology, but thinking about it in terms of spiritual uh, development, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe taking some form of a spiritual development paradigm, like Fowler or spiral dynamics, Mm -hmm. or some of the ones that have been presented in feminist uh, psychology and, um, and writing something theological. And so, so Brian and I, <laughs> he said, he said, you know, I've been thinking about something very similar. <laughs> and, um, and so I said, well, isn't that interesting? And so we had this conversation uh, and because, you know, we're, we're about the same age. He's, he's uh, two years older than I am and our, our trajectories and the things we're passionate about are very similar. I, uh, when we first met, we felt like we had found our long lost, you know, I felt like I found my <laughs> long lost brother. Yeah. And, and so we have this really interesting, very, very brotherly sisterly mm. um, relationship. And we see the world in just very similar ways. Yeah. And so he wound up and, and that was really the last of the conversation we had. And so then he went on and he was writing faith after doubt. And I went on, I'm writing freeing uh, what becomes freeing Jesus. And um, he, he was a couple months ahead of me in the project. So he sent me a, a, a manuscript of it while he's working on it. And I literally read it and I started laughing because I remembered the conversation. And I said, Brian, I didn't know you were really going to do this. Right. <laughs> Get out of my brain, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> because guess what? You know, and I sent him a copy of my book and surprise. <laughs> and we have just both um, you know, just laughed about it. That's funny. Um and so I think that there's something to the fact that we're both over 60 now. And um, 
it's a very interesting shift in one's life and it's a really important time to put the pieces together and so brian's book faith after doubt is a very you know it's a it's kind of a retrospective sort of book it's about putting Mm -hmm. the pieces together and that's really what freeing jesus is too it's about um reassembling uh a life lived in near around and with jesus and trying to make it make sense as part of a larger story. That's really good. I wanted to, if it's all right with you, kind of drill down a little bit into um, one of the, the bigger topics in the book. Um, I think it's chapter three, maybe, but rediscovering Jesus as savior. Because this chapter uh, for me was, I was so important because like, to be honest, over this last year, like up until reading this book, I've almost given up on Jesus as quote, savior because for me growing up like jesus as savior meant that he saved me from my sin nature my disgusting soul you know my wretched self my many faults my countless flaws all these things and growing up in a private christian school and then going to uh, bible college seminary like i've begun to realize how deeply that message about myself has been ingrained in my head and my heart and constantly referring to jesus as my savior and thinking of my own need for a savior did very little more than elevate him and also at the same time belittle myself to the point where like ever since I can remember, I have questioned like everything I've done. I've never felt good enough, borderline at one point in my life, like hated everything about myself. But you really share some things in this chapter to kind of I would just like flip the script of what it means to call Jesus a savior. So I was wondering if you could take us into that chapter a little bit we don't want to give away all the pearls of wisdom (laughs) but if you could take us into that a little bit well that's the chapter that takes place um when i am between about 14 and 17 it's it's roughly it's roughly high school Mm -hmm. and the years were the early mid 1970s so Mm -hmm. i was in high school i graduated in 77 so so here we are situated uh, historically in a really difficult and interesting time in American history. Watergate happened when I was in high school. Jimmy Carter was elected the bicentennial. Mm. So it was kind of the very end of, and the weird end in some senses <laughs> of the baby boom generation. We were the mm. sort of the lost baby boomers. We didn't mm. have any of the stuff that our older brothers and sisters had, but we had all these weird shortages and the gas crisis and all the mm. kinds of stuff. And my parents had done something um, very unexpected, at least from my point of view, probably not from theirs. Um, although my family has roots of three to 400 years in mm. Maryland, Um, In 1972, uh, they literally just up and moved us across the country from Maryland to Arizona. Mm. And so here I am as an adolescent um, in this completely different place Hmm. where there's no one that we have ever known. My parents have decided that they're going to restart their own lives. And they were in their their mid-30s at the time. Hmm. And, um, you know, I just felt lost. You know, everything I had known and everything that my family had known for centuries was gone. And so part of what began to happen when I was there is my parents, they they kind of stopped going to church. Um, We had always been a churchy family. We'd been a Methodist family and uh, for several generations. And so 
so they, but they just stopped. My dad would bought a Jeep and he would go out on the desert on Sunday mornings and, you know, kind of drive around the desert, which is what people did in those days. And uh, my mom, I think she was depressed and she was just sort of sad and she just started sleeping in on Sunday mornings. And so I, I always liked church and I, I kind of wanted to go. And now, you know, I could go to the local Methodist church, but it was that the one in Scottsdale was really dull. It was There was nothing for people my age. And so I started going to different churches with my friends and I went to a Mormon stake and I went to charismatic Catholic, uh, a charismatic Catholic congregation. And um, I, I went to a Presbyterian church a few times with a, my first ever boyfriend. And I went to a Southern Baptist church with one of the kids from a school. And so, so I wound up going to all these different um, churches and also people invited me to things that were even outside of Christianity. And so it was my first experience of religious diversity. And there I was this kind of lost homeless teenager as it were. <laughs> and, um, I was just wide-eyed about everything. And someone finally took me to a church called Scottsdale Bible Church. And it wasn't huge. It was only about maybe 400 people at the time. And the, but it had a great youth group. And so many of the kids that I really, really, really liked from high school um, were in that youth group. And it was what I would call a soft fundamentalist sort of church the pastors for people who are kind of insiders to this world, all the pastors went to Dallas Theological Seminary. And so there was a lot about the end times and the rapture and all sorts of things that people were fascinated by anyway in the 1970s. And so that was all in that church. Um, but I say it was soft because it was, it was, it was pretty nice, mm. really. The people were not turn or burn mean kinds of people. Mm. Um, they were, they were just good people and this was what they believed. And I was fascinated by the idea that anyone could preach a sermon that lasted for 50, not 15, (laughs) (laughs) but 50 minutes. And the sermons were amazing to me because this pastor, he could take one verse in the Bible and talk for nearly an hour. (laughs) (laughs) and i was just like going wow people can do that (laughs) and so it was in the context of that Mm -hmm. um that you know they started asking me the question you know uh have you accepted jesus as your as your savior or sometimes they would say lord and savior but they were mostly concerned at least initially with the idea of jesus being my savior and so um you know i grew up in a methodist church (laughs) and i was baptized when i was uh you know three months old and and i knew i knew the bible not as well as they did but i i knew it okay i knew you know what it was about and i i had my own and all that kind of stuff although they told me i didn't have the right one they (laughs) they made me trade in my my which one did they want you to have i had to have the um the new american standard bible Ah, gotcha yeah. And then they, they also, I think when the NIV came out, that that was one we had to have too. So I had two Bibles um, coming out of that experience, but um, my old re- revised standard Bible, the, the really the Bible edition of mainline Protestantism in the 20th century, that, that wasn't good enough. For Not them. good enough. 
Put it on the shelf. <laughs> That's right. Put that one away. And so, so you can see what I'm saying. It was more kind of a softer yeah, fundamentalism. Sure, sure. So yep. they didn't demand like I have a King James version, for mm -hmm. example. Um, so, so I kept avoiding the question really <laughs> because I felt like I had been, you know, yeah. um, uh, that Jesus was my savior. You know, there was nothing to counter counterdict that, you know? Yeah. And, and so, um, eventually I realized that if I was going to be friends with them, I was going to have to answer that question in a positive mm -hmm. way. You know, I was going to have to say, yes, Jesus was my savior. Uh, so eventually I, I did, hmm. you know, I said, yes, I gave, gave my life to Jesus. So, so I, that's the story of how I got to Jesus. It was kind of awkward and funny. And it was mostly because I wanted to go to the youth group Bible study and sit with a cute boy um, <laughs> that I really liked. Right. It was a year older than me. And, <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, the, just uh, the cool people. It was kind of almost like, like a young life sort of Bible study. And it was, and so, so I, I gave into Jesus mostly because I wanted to, because yeah. I had a crush. <laughs> And you want to get next to that guy. I did. <laughs> That's funny. So how has your like understanding of Jesus as savior kind of evolved? Like, how do you understand that, like that language today? Yeah, that's, that's the question, of course, is that I too, I love what you said at the beginning hmm. of this part of the discussion is that you have sort of shied away yeah. from understanding Jesus as your savior. And so I, I too have found that language weirdly off-putting. Oh, good. I don't feel quite as bad then to hear you say that. <laughs> oh, no, please, please. Uh, yeah, that I I avoided it like the plague. Yeah. Um, mostly, <laughs> I would say when I was in my 40s, it was mm -hmm. just like, that's not language that I want to even consider. Yeah. Um, and so... To, I tell the story in the, you know, the voice of the, the crush. Yeah you know, 14 year old. Um, but then I start looking at the question, you know, well, what does it really mean mm -hmm. that Jesus has saved us? And I, I, I think that the primary problem, and I, I say it in so many words in the book without coming out and actually saying it is that in the United States, we all, we all tend to think about this sort of American Christianity pop version of what it means to be saved and that is you know you're a terrible sinner you're wretched from your birth you have to pray a certain prayer walk mm -hmm. down an aisle and once you've done those things um, then jesus is going to save you saves you from your sins and you are going to go to heaven forever yeah that's sort of the basic theological vision of american christianity yeah. and there are lots of american christians who don't believe that you know yep. catholics and lutherans and sure. stuff um but nevertheless that's kind of the shared the basic narrative yeah <laughs> yeah it really is that's the basic narrative of american christianity yeah. and if you don't fit in it then well you must be a catholic yeah uh, basically that's the way the story goes and you're not it's, really a Christian. <laughs> and that's, of course, what a lot of those people do think. Yeah, you know? it's true. And, and so the so I start taking apart that story, you know, mm -hmm. not, not in a mean way. Yep. But the question that's underneath of it all for me is there's there's this assumption. And the assumption is we all need to be saved from the same thing. 
so in the pop culture narrative of American of Jesus as Savior, the assumption is we are all wretched, yeah, just just sinful from birth, covered with slime, terrible offenders, and this was part of my problem in high school. Um, I just wasn't that bad. <laughs> You know, and yeah. so I would sit in the circle with my friends, including the cute boy, right. and um, I I would listen to them tell these tales of terrible woe. You <laughs> it's know, like you you're bad, but I'm not like that. <laughs> 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 you yeah. need Jesus. <laughs> yeah, it's like, well, maybe, yeah, you really needed Jesus. Right. You know, and they, so they would tell stories about getting <laughs> drunk and using drugs yeah. and lying to their parents and on and on and um it was it, and anybody who's ever been in one of these churches knows that's exactly how it is it's just you're sitting with some of the nicest people you can imagine <laughs> and when you ask them about their stories of salvation they come out like they all belong to the manson family right. you know right. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like well wait a second it's, how can this even be true you know right. you live down the street from me in the suburbs right. and so <laughs> And, and so it's like, you know, it's the more, the more th sort of sinful and, and, and almost a kind of a, a sin voyeurism, almost mm. the, the worst story you can cook up, uh, the better Jesus looks, you know? Yeah. And so, but I just, I, I just wasn't there. Mm -hmm. I had never cheated on a test. I mean, to this day, my 20, now 23 year old daughter laughs at me because uh, I, I never smoked a cigarette. Mm. I never had a drink before I was 21 years old. I mean, I was disgustingly a good girl. Right. And, <laughs> and, you know, there were a couple little things. I would get mad at my brother. Um, you know, once in a while we'd get in physical altercations. Um, mm. I still get mad at him, you know, and here we are in our sixties. <laughs> and um, so you know, I, I get mad at my brother. There was this moment where I did, I stole a couple quarters off my mom's desk mm. and um, she, she caught me. So in, in effect, uh, I had to do penance. Right. So that sin was already gone. <laughs> right. Uh, <so laughs> Wipe that one off. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I look back and it's like, you know, in the terms of a sort of an Augustinian, we're all sinners from our birth sort yeah. of view, my life experience just did not match that. Hmm. And so that was the question I was trying to make sense of is like, yeah. well, wait a second, if I'm not that sinful, why do I need a savior? Yeah. And that's the very question they don't want you to ask. Right. Yeah. And that's you why are they, a sinner. yeah, they want you to know yeah. you are a sinner. Yeah. Yeah. You just have to accept that assumption. Yep. And, and if you don't, then you're a heretic. Yep. But the, yep what they miss is that there are different other ways of being saved. Okay. So if you, if you are a terrible person and you have done all these awful things, then you actually do need to be rescued or saved from a life of that sort of criminal offense, uh, criminal offense. Sure. You know, you're sort of a, you're sort of a life offender against God. Hmm. And so in that sense, Jesus saves you from that 
kind of offense. You, mm. you are no longer judged as that criminal. You are set free from that. And that's the, it's like there's that one theological image, but what if that's not your problem? Mm. And so in the chapter, I talk about how I had two other problems as a teenager, which made Jesus attractive. One was the sense of being lost, mm. a sense of homelessness, you know, because there I was away from my home. And I had this new home and I never felt until much later, I now really enjoy the landscape of Arizona. But when I was 13, 14, 15 years old, I felt like I had, I was in exile. Yeah. And that's actually one of the dominant images of God as savior in, especially in the Hebrew scriptures, but that a people who are wandering in the desert yeah. are fed and saved and cared for and brought to a new home. Yeah. And in that sense, God saves the people of Israel. And when you move into the New Testament, Jesus, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, is depicted as a new Moses. Mm. And so in that sense, Jesus is, and you, I think you can really read the Gospel of Matthew through this lens, is that Jesus is leading a people who are lost and exiled people through a wilderness until the place where they can find their home, mm. the promised yeah. land in God. Yeah. And so, so that's one yeah. of the ways in which we can be saved. And, and then the other way, of course, that we can be saved is uh, we can be rescued from something. Mm. And, and um, I talked about this a little in Grateful, so it's not going to be a surprise to my um, people who have read several of my books. Mm. Uh, but uh, when I was, when we moved to Arizona, my mother's brother um, moved about 18 months later to be closer to us. You know, he, he just thought it was kind of cool that my mom had done this and he decided that he was going to move to Arizona too. And so uh, when he came to Arizona, he stayed with us and I have written before in grateful about how I was abused by my uncle. Mm. And so that happened um, in these early teenage years in Arizona um, when my uncle moved from Maryland to follow my family out to Arizona. Mm -hmm. And so here I was this young, you know, young girl, um, young adolescent and I needed to be saved from that because yeah. I needed to, I need, not only did I not have a home, but the only semblance of a home I had wasn't safe. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so I, I needed saving yeah. and that meant I needed to be rescued from someone who was violating me. Mm -hmm. And uh, that actually did happen. <laughs> I figured out how to lock my door. <laughs> <laughs> I remember you ended the chapter, but I think you named like the type of lock it was. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so, so <laughs> what I think is the bad assumption there, you know, is that there's only one way that we need, there's only one set of problems we need to be saved from. And then there's only one way for Jesus to be savior. Yes. Yes. And the truth of the matter is, is that there are many things, right. myriad things from which we need to be saved as we journey through life. And um, 
for some people, the idea of being covered with sin is not the problem. Yeah. The problem might be feeling lost or mm-hmm. the feeling of being unsafe or the feelings of guilt. I mean, so guilt is a different thing that to need to be freed from. A lot of good people just have guilty consciences. Yeah. You no. Know? Yeah. I mean, the, the quarters made me feel terrible for years to years afterwards. <laughs> and I mean, that, on the scale of offenses, that's a pretty small one. Right. Um, and so some people just kind of naturally have these really highly developed consciences. And actually, we need to sometimes be saved from the demonic uh, attacks of uh, of those kinds of conscious consciences. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so we need to, in that sense, we need to be saved from ourselves. But it's yeah. guilt, not sin yeah. that we need to be saved from. Yeah. So so I th- that's where I shoot toward. That's what I shoot towards in that chapter is mm-hmm. that I'm trying to open up the conversation about salvation and help people recognize that yes jesus saves but boy does jesus save in way more uh senses than what you might have learned back at the bible church yeah and i think that's so important like i was thinking as i was reading that chapter thinking about my own journey and just my own upbringing and you know i was like I said before, that narrative was ingrained in my head for so long. And I just, you know, I struggled with it. And I realized now the kind of the damage that it had done as it was just gone deeper and deeper into my mind and my heart. But it just seems so normal because that's just what I was always told. So I always assumed there was something wrong with me (laughs) if I can't swallow it, if I can't accept it. But the day like it all just began to kind of come undone. I talked about this in previous episodes, but uh, when my daughter was born and we were sitting, I was sitting with her in the NICU and my wife was still um, in the delivery room and she was still under and they were kind of helping her out. And I was down there by myself and this little baby wrapped her finger, I mean, her hand around my finger. And I remember having this crisis, like thinking to myself, like, hold on a second, <laughs> like this, mm-hmm. this child cannot possibly be marred with a sinful nature. And I remember having this like discussion with God, like, God, if you look at this child that is mine and you see her as this wretched, disgusting being because she has some kind of sin nature, I don't, I, I don't know what to do with that. Like, I don't think I can, I can do this anymore. And I remember like, I, I was like, I have to figure this out. And then like a couple months later, I was sitting with her on the bed. She was, I was reading to her at night and I had this little children's Bible I was reading to her the story of Jesus and the story went something along the lines of, um, you know, Jesus dying because we have this sin, this sin in us. I forget how it worded it for kids, but that was the general idea and that God was mad at us. I remember I closed that to my wife. I I can't read this. (laughs) I cannot read this to her. Like I need, I need to figure this out. And like, it just created such a crisis for me. And I think, like I said before, I kind of pushed that idea of Jesus as savior away because I didn't know what else, I didn't know how else to frame that idea. Uh, But your chapter, just bringing out these different things that we need saving from, like whatever season of life we're in, the the saving that we need might look different. Um, And I think that that's so important to realize. And Jesus as savior enters into all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And at some points it might be grief. Yeah. You know, um, that we, we need saving from a kind of sadness and, and not just feeling lost, but actually loss 
we need to be saved from loss yeah um fear yeah you know there's there's so many ways in which our souls wind up wounded and broken yeah and that are sinful not because you know we we had some original sin passed to us Mm -hmm. but you know fear and loss and being lost and abuse and trauma and all those things um those they aren't sins in that we invited them or we committed them but they are things that are done to us that wound us in such a way that they take us from Mm -hmm. away from god and they take us away from the deepest senses of loving ourselves yeah and so that brokenness, that woundedness, the, that those sins, the separation from self and God, that needs to be restored. Yeah. And yeah. so Jesus, in the Christian tradition, Jesus is the, the, the salve, the healer, the great physician, the, the one who binds our wounds mm the one who rescues us from danger, all of these different images of Jesus activity as savior. It's so much more than just fixing the problems of St. Augustine. That's right. Yeah. As I, as I think about that and as I think about what you just said in the story that I just told you, like I, you know, and I think to myself, like asking Jesus, you know, what does this all mean for me? I feel like one of the things that the spirit is saying to me is that, I, I, I'm here to save you almost from that theology that you grew up with that created in you that desire to almost hate yourself. And I mm-hmm. feel like there's a sense now where I'm, I'm going to be 40 next year. And I feel like as I enter that next decade of my life, I feel like one of the things that God is going to do with me is save me from that sense of shame that I've carried for so many years. And that's, that is so beautiful. Hmm. And I also think your story about your daughter is beautiful because, um, uh, and I do tell this in the book, I'm pretty good friends with um, John Philip Newell, who is the Church of Scotland pastor, theologian, um, who was for many years the the warden, I love that name, (laughs) uh, of the the Iona community in Scotland. Hmm. And... um, And John Philip loves telling the story about how when his first grandchild, when he, when he saw his first grandchild and the, there was this moment of just complete wonder in the presence of, of the grand, of the grandbaby and anybody who's ever held an infant or had an infant do to them what your daughter did to you there's almost no words in human language to yeah. describe what happens That's right. at that first touch. Hmm. And so John, John Philip talks about how um, the Welsh theologian Pelagius, who is determined to be a heretic um, in the, in church history, even though it took the Roman, the Roman church um, six tries to get him declared a heretic. It was, Mm. it was a pretty tough go. He wasn't, he he was, he didn't go down easy. (laughs) No, he didn't go down easy. He almost escaped his fate as as a heretic. Um, But he talks about that very thing. Mm. He believes that, that, that an infant that has come from God, that that's the closest 
we human beings ever get to God. Yeah. Because that infant in those first seconds, in those first minutes of life has not lived in the environment of sin that the rest of us have had to live in however long we've been on this planet. Mm. And so, so the Pelagian sort of tradition is that we are literally born still holding that touch of God in us. And what happens of course, is that because is that, is that becomes so that becomes obscured and it becomes damaged Mm -hmm. and, and we do need a savior. Um, But it's not because there's the, the, that infant, that, that wonder, that moment of not being able to express whatever it is that infant is holding in his or her or their bodies. um, That moment right there is God. Yeah. Like they're fresh out of the garden. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Yeah. They're literally fresh, fresh from God. Wow. It's mm-hmm. life recreated. That in a sense is the power of human procreation. Yeah. Is that the making of another life is really the place where um, we animals are closest to God yeah. um, because that's what God did. Yeah. <laughs> and so so I mean it's it's just oh. a it's a remarkably beautiful vision and it is of course the vision that the church eventually declared to be her- heresy um and replaced that pelagian vision of that infant holding the the very breath and being of god's freshness in the infant body Mm-hmm. Um, replace that with a vision of uh, whenever two human beings have sex, a woman is impregnated with a sperm that carries actually original sin in it. Oh. And so that every human being is born in a state of original sin. Yeah. I'm twitching right now. <laughs> I know. Yes. Yeah. And, and <laughs> there have been people throughout the history of the church who have said that's no, you yeah. know, that's just a big no. Yeah. And yet the church has, I I think that certainly the Western tradition has maintained its theological and sacramental power over millions and millions and millions of people by insisting that that is the truth of human beings. Yep. And I'm sorry, I'm off the ship. Yeah. And if you, you want to call me a heretic for being off of that ship, well, uh, there are others many, 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 many millions who have made these same observations and who have come to similar conclusions, but they have just not often been very loud about it. Right. (laughs) Because when you're loud about it, I mean, that's when you get, you get chastised and you get um, pushed out. Yeah. Yeah, Geez. Don't talk about that on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) She says from experience. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Of all people, you know that. (laughs) And and Uh, so, you know, I think it's really interesting, you know, right now we're, as we're taping, we're in, we're in Lent. And I guess uh, this will probably be aired right at the very end of Lent. And um, I go to Episcopal church. I've been an Episcopalian for a long time and I have friends. They, they, they love Lent. And um, I sometimes ask them, why, why do you love Lent? Well, it's the only time when, you know, I can just get out there and, and really, you know, 
mourn, wail, weep, you know, what have you, <laughs> right. over how truly bad I am. Yeah. And if you went around uh, Episcopal Twitter right now, uh, seeing, you know, various accounts of different priests and sort of uh, different Anglican Twitter accounts, they, they oftentimes have their, you know, little seasonal names um, mm. as their Twitter names. Yep. And there's one right now that, that has the, the word wretched, and that's that's her name and another one that says there is no health in us uh, you know? <laughs> and, oh and it's like oh my <laughs> gosh you know honestly yeah you know maybe you need therapy right, <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, don't put that on me yeah. you know <laughs> yeah Maybe wow. this is your problem, and maybe it was Saint Augustine's problem, but it wasn't my problem. That's right. I, I reject that energy. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> Bad enough of that in my life. <laughs> right, and yeah. it's like, and and literally, there's some some group of people, um, some group of theological voices, in uh, especially Gen Gen X. I would say, and a little mm -hmm. bit in some millennial circles that shows up not just in these sort of really grim uh, circles of, of Episcopal, the Episcopal Church, but also in the Southern Baptist Convention with this sort of high neo-Calvinism. Mm. We, you know, we are all sinners. We can never, ever be free from the depth of sin that God chooses only a few to be saved. You know, so we have this sort of, you know, high Calvinist uh, Baptist thing going yeah. on with some circles. And of course, there is uh, the very theologically rigorous forms of the of presbyterianism that adopt this too mm -hmm. uh, like the presbyterian church in america a lot of the sort of the evangelical presbyterian sorts of schismatic groups in presbyterianism the orthodox the orthodox presbyterian church mm -hmm. and and so these are these are communities um and whole denominations and movements within denominations that actually glory in being in our in our broken state yeah and i think to myself man who do you attract to that that doesn't seem like it's the best evangelism strategy right. to me you know <laughs> you're terrible come follow us <laughs> that's right if you feel like you're wretched you found your <laughs> friend place for you right? <laughs> i think that's so i think that's so important though like you know it's you you you're raised to think of it in one way, but like you talk about Pelagius versus Augustine, like two different ends of the spectrum. And like, even in seminary, I, I didn't, I heard Pelagius's name, but it was always in the sense that he was the heretic. So don't listen to him. Augustine right. was the right one. And like, it's so interesting that in the early centuries of Christianity, there was such a wide diversity and you would never know that I think today. Right. And yeah. that is, I, I actually do share a story about that um, later in the book uh, when I was in graduate school. Yes, you do. Yeah. And um, what happens in this grad school setting is one of the very first lectures that I had to go to as a church history student was a lecture by a woman who taught early Christianity. And um, so we, all the people who are getting PhDs in history of Christianity didn't matter if you were like me, I was doing 19th century American mm. uh, religion, or if you were doing, you know, reformation or medieval, you all, we all had to go to every lecture um, that the professors gave. And so mm. she was an early Christian scholar, Elizabeth Clark, just an amazing human being. 
uh, also very noted uh, uh, feminist theologian. Mm. And so uh, Liz started her lecture and like in the first sentence of her lecture, she started talking about early Christianities, <laughs> plural. <laughs> and I'm sitting there, I was just, I had just graduated with honors, you know, in church history from Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, which is an evangelical school. And nobody that <laughs> I had ever <laughs> run into had used that phrase. That, that there's more than one? Right. That there's more than one. <laughs> and, and so the whole lecture was uh, about the diversity of the early the, uh, the early church. Uh, you can't even really call it the church, you know, because it's just a whole bunch of ragged churches that all happen to be claiming Jesus' story. And they're all mm -hmm. interpreting it in a whole bunch of different ways. And her story, with her, her lecture was really on the construction of orthodoxy. Mm. So how orthodoxy coalesced um, in this environment of sort of hyper diversity and yeah. uh, the sort of political mass machinations uh, that were involved in that. I can remember sitting there <laughs> and my, my poor chin must have been, right. have been just like glued to the, the floor because <laughs> it was, I, I literally wondered if I was listening to a, a lecture by the devil. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but it was, you know, it was the lecture mm. that was in a, in effect, a little like what you're saying about your daughter, um, taking her, you know, sort of newborn hand and curling it around your finger. Yeah. Um, you know, even though this was kind of that, it, it, it was, it was the moment of intellectual crisis that sort of came into my field of view. Yeah. It's like, wait a second, this woman is speaking a whole different set of languages than I know. And yeah. I can do one of two things here. I can turn this off and deny it and try to excuse it, or I can at least listen to it and attempt to understand and figure out what it means. Um, and I cared about these things in terms of my own faith. Yeah. And so I initially very quickly took the denial strategy, but that failed to work. Mm. And by you just really a, a half year or so later, I was listening a lot more than I think even some of my Duke classmates would have ever known mm. uh, to the new voices that were around me. And it's, it's fascinating to me that so much of my own work around who Jesus is and how I had to free Jesus, because what I had to free Jesus from uh, was these the sorts of uh, stories that I had put around Jesus that had been handed to me by authorities. And those stories were, you know, from my parents sometimes, yeah. although my parents were pretty, op pretty open-minded and good people about the stories they shared, but certainly the churches I was part of. And then when I went to seminary, it was that my seminary professors, they handed you a plate of stories about Jesus. Mm. And if you didn't buy those stories, you were out. Yeah. And so when I did get to graduate school, I think I expected just a plate, a new plate of stories, mm. um, perhaps a more sophisticated sort of menu, as it were, um, of stories. Uh, but that wasn't what graduate school was about. Graduate school was about uh, learning how to cook again, really. Mm. Yeah. Uh, rather than just accepting the plate of food that comes out for you from the, the kitchen. And, yeah. and so 
so much of, of what I had been handed was about me being bad and evil was about um, the incapacity of human beings to ever do anything that resembled the good. So it, there was a plate about original sin, you know, that yeah. just had to be accepted. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course there was a whole plate of stories about the action of Jesus. Yeah. So, you know, if, if your problem is that we're all essentially criminals because we have this <laughs> DNA gene that we inherited from Adam and Eve, where we'll, we would always break the law no matter what. Yeah. Um, then the the only solution is Jesus has to, and this is exactly the way it was set up, is that uh, God puts us on trial at the end of our lives for being criminals and if you're a criminal, you're going to go to hell. Yeah. And if you're a good person, you're going to go to heaven. And so, of course, nobody can go to heaven in this scenario. Mm. Um, and so how do, what, how, do, how does that problem get solved? And so the problem gets solved that Jesus then, God sends Jesus. And this is literally a phrase that's used in popular literature and in higher theological literature. Jesus goes into the dock and takes our place. Yep. And so Jesus is sinless. And so when God looks at us, God is actually, if we're, if we have accepted Jesus as our savior, is that God then doesn't see us. God sees Jesus instead. Jesus stands in the dock for us. He doesn't see you. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And instead then Jesus goes to go. And so then Uh. we're judged according to Jesus sinlessness rather Uh. than our wretchedness. And then because God only sees Jesus, we get to go to heaven. Yeah. And that all had to go. And so mm-hmm. that whole vision of what happens at, uh, of Jesus as savior, of course, in this book, I have to deal with that at several levels because yeah. I know that readers are dealing with that at several levels. A hundred percent. Yeah. I think everybody listening to this is probably dealing with that on some extent. And I was, as I was telling that story, I was <laughs> yeah. really hoping I wasn't traumatizing any of your, your no. listeners. I actually was thinking, should we put a trigger warning on that <laughs> section? <laughs> Maybe I will in the beginning of the episode. Maybe I'll mention that <laughs> trigger warning. <laughs> Theological trigger warning for exactly. uh, God and uh, Jesus in the dock. Yeah. Um <laughs> But you know that to me that is just so so sad. I mean the whole idea and and this does come through I think in the narrative the the whole idea that if God is looking at us that God doesn't see us but instead instead sees Jesus. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's so sad. So sad. Because that's not what it's all about. Yeah. Jesus says you know, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. Yeah. That we have become, as it says in the Old Testament about God and Moses, mm. friends of God. Mm. And if anything happens in salvation, it's not that God is just looking through some Jesus umbrella uh, and saves all those wretched ants crawling around that happen to be underneath of it. No. The vision there is that God sees us and loves us. Yes. 
And that's what, that's what ultimately salvation is all about is that that which is wounded is made whole. That which was in exile is brought home. That which was um, diseased has been healed. And so that's how much God loves us. God sees us in the woundedness. God sees us in exile. God sees us in our pain. And, and that in that seeing provides this way through Jesus as friend, through Jesus as companion, through Jesus as way to save us from what needs, what we need to be saved from. Yeah. That's right. When I was reading this chapter, I was thinking a parallel uh, uh, illustration I had heard once in a sermon was that, um, how did the person put it? We essentially, what the gospel is, is that, is that we got into Harvard on our big brother's good grades. Oh. Harvard looked at us and said, yeah, you're, you, you got, you got nothing, but your brother, Jesus, he's, he's the student, but we're going to look at him instead of you and reluctantly let you let you in. And as I was thinking about that illustration in light of your chapter, I felt like one of the things the spirit whispered to me is no, no, no. You got into Harvard because Harvard saw your gifts. Harvard saw your abilities. Harvard saw your potential. And Jesus wrote the recommendation for you. Like, you know, I felt like it was like, it's more of like a friend as opposed to we're going to look at him instead of you. And we're going to reluctantly let you in the doors. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's so funny because that illustration, it just doesn't even work anyway, because if you get into Harvard on somebody else's graves, it's grades, it's a, it's a criminal offense. Right. There you go. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the whole illustration falls apart. 100%. <laughs> it really does. You'll wind up in jail. Right. Um, <laughs> Because you've committed fraud. Exactly. And, and so really. And you've paid in, somebody to let you in probably. I know. So we've basically invented a theologic theology of fraud. Right. There you go. <laughs> Maybe that's what we'll title this episode. Overcoming a theology of fraud. <laughs> and, uh. and, and, you know, I, when I tell these stories in this book and when I, you know, when we're talking about this, yeah. you know, uh, who wants to be part of a Christianity that tells that story, you know, yeah, that's right. uh, about, you know, faking your grades to get into Harvard or <laughs> Jesus holding Truth. an umbrella over you. So God doesn't see you. Right. Sneaking but, you in back to work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it's, no, it's none of that. Yeah. This is the, the, the new Testament, the Jesus story is a, a story of, a love that was so powerful and so beautiful and so radical that the Roman empire couldn't stand it and had to kill it, kill the guy who was talking about it, you know, (laughs) because it, it takes away the, the kinds of mechanisms that keep people in their place. Yeah. You know, if you are loved of God, if you are a friend of God, well, why should you, you know, sort of, why should you still be a slave? Yeah. Yeah, wouldn't that cause you to do a, a? Wouldn't that cause you to like want your other slaves to revolt? Yeah. And so that's that's often been the case in church mm. history. Is that when people really get what this story is about, it causes them to do kind of wild things politically. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Take down oppressive governments. Right. Um, demand uh, true justice for mm. all people. Right. Um, so it's a it's a beautiful story. It sure it really, is. 
and we've lost it because we've allowed ourselves to, you know, and, and I don't mean that some people, you know, really permitted it. I think that we didn't even know we were being colonized. Yeah. Well, it's a subconscious type thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We were being colonized by somebody else's version of a story that had ceased to work a really long time ago. Yeah. And so people say, well, you know, oh, so many folks are leaving Christianity has nothing to say. Well, I, I actually am of the mind that the false narratives of Christianity, these, these truly twisted um, stories that have kept corrupt institutions in control of the faith. Yeah. Those are failing. Yeah. And those deserve to fail. That's right. Let them, let but, them burn. <laughs> but, but, the, but there's a whole difference. There's a yeah. whole different story. Yes. And you and your book are setting it free. So thank you. <laughs> and that's just, you know, kind of as we end, you yeah. know, I, there's a certain irony in the title because mm -hmm. in freeing Jesus, we wind up freeing ourselves. That's right. 100%. Well, Diana, we are, we are at the end of our time and I could talk to you. I could go on for the rest of the day if we both had the time to do it, but thank you so much for taking the time to, to drop by. Um, I appreciate you and uh, your encouragement in my life and I appreciate your work. So thank you. Well, I always love being with you, Glenn, and um, your journey inspires me. And uh, I just, uh, I carry the image of your small daughter uh, with me because what a holy moment. Yeah, that's right. Well, thank you, Diana. Um, I will put all of your links and of course, the link to the book in the show notes. And uh, I'm sure we'll do this again soon. Great. All right. Thank you.